0: Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As most of you know, we spent 20 years in the wonderful city of Guadalajara in Mexico, When we first got there, knowing no one, it took a while to get going, years to get going. We were there to start new churches, and it was very slow and very discouraging. And I was having a great deal of trouble recruiting helpers, recruiting workers. And I would contact people, and they would ask me, well, what's going on there? And I'd say, not much. And that would kind of put them off. And they'd say, well, we're not so interested in that. Apparently, they were interested in fields where things were moving along Uh, more quickly. After a few years, things began to pick up and really began to grow and to go. And then I began to get inquiries of people that were wanting to join us because they had heard about the things that were happening in Guadalajara. And I would tell them, "Uh, you're too late. Where were you when I needed you? I was perhaps a little politer than that. But I would say, have you considered Monterey? Have you considered somewhere else? And then I got a, a call that I found amusing. It was from our country director in Mexico, and he was talking about the things happening in Guadalajara uh, in, in our work and in the work of another, another group in the north part of the city. And, and he said, I really want to hear about the Guadalajara model. And I had to laugh. I laughed on the phone. I said, the Guadalajara model? What are you talking about? What model is this? He said, well, just describe the, the work that you're doing and the, the model that you're using. I said, well, this is the model. This is our model of ministry. We pray. We fast. We try to share the gospel with people. We gather for public worship and have the sacraments. We try to love our neighbors and serve our neighbors. That's the Guadalajara model. And then we just keep doing those things until God brings the harvest. That's our model. And so, um, what we have in this text today, I guess we could call, if we're talking about models, we could call the Colossian model of ministry. So, Paul, Timothy, tell us about the model of ministry that you're using. And theirs actually is even more simple than mine it's this pray, live out your faith, and talk to people about Jesus. Pray, live out your faith, and talk to people about Jesus. We could could summarize that as pray, walk, and talk. Pray, walk, and talk. And that's what we're going to be seeing today. Pray, walk, and talk. And that's how it begins. Verses 2 to 4 about prayer. And then verses 5 and 6 about walking and talking. So verse 2, it tells us to pray. But not only to pray, but it says to persist in prayer. Continue steadfastly. Fastly in prayer now it 's interesting how b- well balanced this this letter is, and you find this in, in a number of paul 's letters, where the letter begins with prayer and thanksgiving for the recipients of the letter, and then it ends with prayer and thanksgiving being requested for the letter writers and so it begins with uh, we could go to verses verses uh, verse one i 'm sorry chapter one, verse three where Paul and Timothy write, "...we always thank God..." the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And then we get to the end of the letter, and it says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, and at the same time, pray for us. So we pray for you, we give thanks for you, now you pray for us, and don't forget to give thanks. But the the instruction here is not just to pray, it's to persist in prayer. And this word is not a common word in the New Testament, but most of the times it's used... It has to do with prayer. Persist in prayer. And uh, some examples of that in Acts. Acts chapter 1 verse 14. Acts chapter 2 verse 42. And then uh, Acts chapter 6 verse 4. Romans chapter 12 verse 12. Persist in prayer. Jesus had already taught about this, hadn't he? Do you remember the parable of that persistent widow? Uh, She wanted justice from the unjust judge. And so what did she do? She harassed him constantly. She wore him down. And the point of the parable was, if the unjust judge was finally willing to grant her petition because of her persistence, how much more will your loving Heavenly Father grant you what you ask when you persist in prayer? But that's, that's the problem, isn't it? The problem for Christians and for churches is not praying. Christians pray, and churches pray. The, the difficulty is persisting in prayer, isn't it? And you've had that experience, I'm sure. You say, you know, I'm, I'm really going to become more of a, a person of prayer. And you set out on becoming that person of prayer and make some good steps in that direction. But it's the, it's the persistence. It's the day after day, the week after week, the month after month, the year after year, the decade after decade of persisting in prayer that's difficult. Churches do the same thing. I don't know how many in, in my ministry of some 30-some years, I don't know how many prayer meetings I've seen die they begin strong, and, and there's some excitement there, and, and there's some momentum there about prayer, and we really need to gather for prayer, and then, <clears throat> then little by little, they, they die off, because it's, it's hard to persist in prayer. What do we need to persist in prayer? Well, we need what we need in every discipline, every discipline in life, whatever that discipline might be. We need the formation of habits of habits, personal habits, and church habits, so that it's no longer a discipline, but it's just what we do. It is part of our lives. It's no longer requiring much effort because it's simply built in like many other habits in our lives. And how do we form those habits? We form those habits through small, consistent repetitions, Small, consistent repetitions, developing small habits, small small practices of prayer in our lives, small practices of prayer in our families, small practices of prayer in our marriages, small practices of prayer in our churches, and then doing those over and over and over so that they're no longer disciplines. They're habits. They're normal. That's how we persist in any discipline. And that's how we'll learn to persist in prayer. But in addition to, oh, by the way, this is, I don't know, maybe the fourth time Thanksgiving is mentioned here. This this letter is sprinkled with Thanksgiving. It begins with Thanksgiving, the reminders throughout it about Thanksgiving, and here at the end with Thanksgiving. Don't forget Thanksgiving, folks for all the benefits that the Lord has given you. And then, in addition to persistence with thanksgiving, we need to be watchful, watchful, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now, this is a metaphorical use of um, of a an image of guard duty. What are guards supposed to do? If they're watching the city, they're watching the fort, they're watching the front line, the camp, whatever it might be, what are guards supposed to do? They're supposed to watch. They're supposed to be vigilant. They're supposed to keep an eye out, and it looks like this metaphorical use of watching, of being on our guard, is a Christian innovation. We don't find this elsewhere, that that this is something that we find in Scripture, this idea of watching, and often this watching, this idea of watching, keeping awake, keeping guard, keeping an eye out, is attached to prayer, and sometimes it just means stay awake. Uh, In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. And there it looks like he's saying, try to stay awake. Stay awake so that you can pray. And of course, staying awake is a precondition for prayer. I guess we sort of have some sort of prayers. I think you probably do in your your sleep as well, but they tend to be rather confused. But for for prayer, we we need to stay awake. So whatever it takes to stay awake, to be able to pray. But it, it means more than that. It means uh, that we should be watchful for Jesus' return. Oftentimes, when this is used, this metaphorical use of guard duty, it's with reference to Jesus' return. If if you look at, let's say, uh, Mark chapter 13, which has to do in part with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and at least in my view, in part with uh, the return of the Lord at the end of the age at the end of this discourse, Jesus says, Therefore, this translation says, Stay awake. I would say, probably stronger. Therefore, keep on watch, keep on guard duty, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or the midnight or when the rooster crows or the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, Stay awake, or rather, stay on guard duty, keep watch. Now, this is interesting. This is attached to prayer, and, and this, this raises the, the sights of our prayers. It, it, it shows the, the end game of our prayers. It, it reminds us of the, the, the final result, the, the, the purpose of our prayers. It is not simply our, our, our concerns for our lives, for the lives of others, but it's, it's kingdom-focused prayer. It's the coming of Jesus that we have in mind. So, so in our prayers, we need to develop this watchfulness and re- remember that as we pray, we are, we are not only asking for the, the little things that, that, uh, that fill up our lives, but we're asking for the, the huge things that fills up, fill up the universe. The coming of the Son of Man, the establishment of the kingdom, the submission of all nations to him, the salvation of people from every tribe, language, tongue, and people. And and when we when we forget that our prayers become humdrum, our prayers become even boring. Our prayers become routine because we're not focused on that that final purpose. John Piper, whom some of you know, pastor uh, John Piper, an author, in 1988 he he gave a talk called "Prayer, comma the work of missions." Prayer, the work of missions, and he reminded us in that. The focus of our prayer and what happens when we we lose our focus. He wrote this or said this, and then it was in print. So I do not tire of saying to our church, the number one reason why prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is that they try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Until you believe that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. It is as though the field commander, Jesus, called in the troops, gave them a crucial mission, go and bear fruit, handed each of them a personal transmitter coded to the frequency of the general's headquarters and said, comrades, the general has a mission for you. He aims to see it accomplished. And to that end, he has authorized me to give each of you personal access to him through these transmitters. If you stay true to his mission and seek his victory first, he will always be as close to you as your transmitter to give tactical advice and to send in air cover when you or your comrades need it. But what have millions of Christians done? They've stopped believing that we are at war. No urgency. No watching. No vigilance no strategic planning, just easy peacetime and prosperity. And what did they do with the walkie-talkie? They tried to rig it up as an intercom in their cushy houses and cabins and boats and cars, not to call in firepower for conflict with a mortal enemy, but to ask the maid to bring another pillow to the den. That's what happens when we forget what prayer is about. We hook it up as a domestic intercom instead of using it for that ultimate purpose which is the conquest of all nations and peoples under the reign of Jesus. So, back to the text. They said, watch, keep watch. Yes, stay awake, but keep watch for the coming of the Lord, because that's the end game of our prayers. Now, um, this focus, we find it all through the scriptures, but we find it in the prayer we just prayed, the Lord's Prayer. What does the Lord's Prayer say? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. And so even in that basic prayer for Christians, we see that the focus is on that coming. Now, um, with focus on this overall purpose, Paul asked for prayer for them. At the same time, verse 3, pray for us. Now, who are the us? Well, certainly Paul and Timothy, they're writing this letter could be others, Epaphras and other uh, companions of Paul and Timothy. And what did they pray? That a door may be opened to us for the word. This is one of Paul's favorite, not just Paul's, but others uh, find in other places in the New Testament. But it's an image of the open door we find it in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, 2 Corinthians 2, 12. And also we find it in Acts chapter 14, where Luke was writing about how God opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. What does that image emphasize? The, the, the door. Pray that God would open the door for us and for the word. What does that emphasize? Well, it emphasizes that, that God is sovereign and he can open doors, doors that are closed to us. He can open them. And it also emphasizes that our part in this is to try to push through doors, is try to get those doors open for the word to go forth. And you see this in Paul's ministry. He would go here and he'd say, nope, the Lord closed that door. So we went elsewhere and the Lord opened up a door there. And he just kept pushing out and praying that God would open those doors. We pray for unreached people groups. We prayed for one this morning, didn't we? And what are we praying? God, push that door open the door's been closed. Push that door open. Only you can push that door open and help us to see how to get through whatever crack in that door there might be to get the word there. We also need to pray for the door of people's hearts to be opened. We share the gospel with them, but we realize that we don't have access to their hearts, do we? But there is one who does. And so we preach to them and we pray that God would open their hearts to faith as Luke describes. Now then Paul turns from plural to singular. Did you notice that in verse 3? At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. There's a switch here. This, is, this letter is principally in, in first person plural. So it looks like Timothy had a, a a hand in this writing. It's not just Paul, but it looks like it's, a, it's really a, a, a plural uh, authorship here. But then Paul turns because he had a certain role to play that was, if not unique, at least very, very special. He had a role, a call from God to open these doors of faith to the Gentiles to be an instrument of revelation to the nations. And you find that there was a division of labor and it looks like a a, an imbalanced division of labor where early on the other apostle said, well, we'll go to the Jews and you, Paul, you go to the Gentiles. But he recognized that God had called him to a very, very special task to preach the mystery of Christ. He says, on account of which I am in prison. And this word to declare is to reveal. He's the agent of revelation of something that had not been known. We find this word mystery throughout throughout Colossians if you look at chapter 1 verse 26 it, it shows up there a couple of times the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, chapter 2, verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And so Paul recognized his role as the revealer to the nations of this mystery that had been revealed to him. And what is that mystery? It's Christ. But it's not just Christ. It's Christ for the nations. And that was the thing that was the surprise and the thing that that people had trouble catching on to in the Old Testament. Yes, they were expecting Christ. The Jewish people were expecting Christ. And yes, they, they wanted the nations to look on to them and to see the benefits that God had given them. But they did not conceive the, the extent to which God was concerned for the nations and that this Christ, this Jewish Messiah who was coming, was not just the, the Messiah of the Jews. He was the, the Christ for the nations. And that was the news. That was the, 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 uh, the, the, um, the revelation, the revelation that, that Peter received, the revelation that Paul received, the revelation that finally grasped the, the imagination of the, the apostles in the early church, that Christ is for the nations. And that was Paul's special privilege, but it was also a costly one. We haven't really talked about the the context of this letter yet, but now we finally find out where Paul was when he wrote this letter. And he was in prison. And most scholars think that this was in Rome uh, and that he wrote other letters from Rome, uh, Philippians and Ephesians and Philemon, his prison epistles. But when he calls out for prayer for him, what does he pray? If you were in prison in Rome which would not have been a a comfortable situation, if you were in prison there and you were asking for prayer, what would you ask for? I know what I would ask for. Release. Get me out of here. Pull any strings that you have. Uh, uh, Talk to your, your, your your local governor, whatever it might be. Try to get me out of here. Do whatever you can and pray that God would get me out of here. I'm afraid that's how I would be praying. And what did Paul say? I'm in prison, but pray that I may make this mystery clear, which is how I ought to speak. Clarity, clarity in my preaching. Pray for me when you think of me, pray for clarity in my preaching. Pray for every preacher for this. This is what all preachers need. And if Paul needed people to pray for him to be clear, how much more do we need for people to pray for us to be clear? But this is the the point of preaching this mystery, that it would be clear to those who hear it. Now, that's that's the prayer, the prayer with watching, prayer with thanksgiving, prayer with the focus on the kingdom, with the extension of the kingdom, the the revelation of the mystery to the nations. And then Paul and Timothy turn back to us, to Christians, and tell us what to do. Walk. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Interesting. He he gives instructions here. Uh, there are a number of instructions, and usually the instructions at the end of these letters has to do with how we treat each other in the church. but here the instructions are how to relate to those outside the church, and it says "Walk in wisdom toward outsiders." This could be conceived as really the the exhortation the principal exhortation of this whole letter, this image of walking in wisdom, if you go back to Chapter one, verse nine. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Chapter two, uh, verse six as well. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So if you, somebody stops you and says, what's the, what's the message of, of, uh, of Colossians for me? Well, the message of Colossians is Christ is preeminent. Christ is above all. So walk in a manner that's worthy of him. And here it is again. Walk in a manner worthy of him wisdom, but do so particularly with a view towards outsiders, towards outsiders. I'm, I'm sure you've heard me say this several times, several times in different places that I've lived. I've encountered different objections to the gospel when I try to share the gospel with people. But generally here in South Florida, I don't hear objections to the gospel. People don't say that's not true people don't don't present that sort of objection what they do is they point at christians and they say i don't want to be like that that that's the main objection that i hear to the gospel not christianity but but christians and if that's the case and if that is something characteristic of where we live then that makes this verse even more urgent for us walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time the image here is of Redeeming out of slavery, redeeming out of bondage, redeeming the time, buying back the time. One translator says um, that we ought to buy up the time, snatch up, snap up the time, because every interaction that Christians have with non-Christians says something about Christianity to those non-Christians. Every opportunity. There is this, this principle in communication studies that says this. You cannot not communicate. You cannot not communicate. So every interaction you have with somebody outside the church communicates something. So so snap it up. Snatch it up. Buy that opportunity up because you will be saying something about Christ and about Christianity. That's the first responsibility. It's not only It's not only the apostles, it's not only Paul, it's not only Timothy, it's not only Epaphras that have this responsibility with the outside world, but all of us, the twofold responsibility to walk, and then in verse 6, to talk. Let your speech, let your speech always be in grace. That's what it says. Let your speech always be in grace. And there are different ideas about what that in grace means. It could be another reference to thanksgiving. It could have to do with the content of what you speak, that it needs to be about God's grace. But probably here, it has to do with the manner of your speaking. That's the focus of the speaking here, isn't it? Paul said, pray for me that I would be what? Clear in my speaking. And here he says, how should we speak with those on the outside in grace? The manner of our speaking should be gracious. It doesn't mean we we change the, the message that we preach to make it more acceptable. That's not the idea. The idea is that we present the only gospel that there is in grace with graciousness. And then the image that's added onto that fills out that idea of gracious speech, seasoned with salt. Our our speech should be savory. Our speech should be satisfying. Our speech should be attractive. Our, Our speech should should uh, be appealing to others, not insipid, like food without any seasoning, but but like food that has salt, food that has seasoning. Now, um, this actually gets even harder with this last line, because here they say, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So it's not just a general approach of I'm going to be gracious in general, but I need to figure out how I need to speak the gospel in grace with each person. And here, this requires not only that we know the scripture well, but that we also pay attention to people, that we pay attention to the people that we're talking to Evangelism training programs are excellent, and a number of us have been through different evangelism training programs. And what they do is they give us a way to present the gospel, an outline, some scripture verses, some illustrations, and those are excellent programs. They, they give us a, a, an outline in our mind, when I preach the gospel, when I share the gospel, I need to cover these points in the gospel. But the danger is, is then just to give a formatted presentation to each person without paying attention to the person. But did you see here it says, so that you may know how, to, how you ought to answer each person, paying attention to each one. I found a friend and colleague uh, mine, his approach to, to evangelism and coming back to the States. He was a missionary uh, to Muslims in France, and he's back in the States and a professor and church planter, and I've kind of followed the same thing, coming back to the States and, and teaching and, and planning a church. But he has a book uh, about evangelism simply called Get Real, Get Real. And I, I really have benefited from his approach because it, it requires exactly what's, what Paul and Timothy are saying here. It requires graciousness, it requires paying attention to each person, and it requires knowledge of the Scripture so that we might act wisely and speak wisely to everyone we meet. This is, the, this is his program. You ready for it? I think I've mentioned it to you before. The first part is really hard for us, and that is be as inefficient with your days as possible to maximize your exposure to people. So... Don't use the ATM. Go in and talk to the teller. Don't pay at the pump. Go in and talk to the person in the quick mart who's selling the gas. So be as inefficient as possible to maximize your exposure to people. And then pray for opportunities to share the gospel and assume that God is answering your prayer with every person he brings into your life. So you pray, Lord, bring it into my life today. Uh, The people with whom you want me to share the gospel and then assume that God's answering that prayer with every person you meet. And then find a way to let them know that you're a Christian as soon as possible. And then here's where you pay attention to them. You've told who you are. You've told who your Lord is. And now you pay attention to them. You ask them questions. You get to know them and you let them tell you how to share the gospel with them. As you get to know them, then you reach back with your scriptural knowledge and say, oh, I see how Christ enters into this conversation. I see how to introduce Christ to this person's life. And then you communicate the facts of the gospel. You talk about God. You talk about humanity and sin. You talk about Christ and you talk about the response of faith. A very simple approach to evangelism. And then you pray for them and you remember them and you serve them. And you love them, no matter how they respond to you. A simple evangelism program. And what is it? It's paying attention to Scripture, and it's paying attention to people. And it's using our speech in grace. Now, this is the only instance we find in Paul to use a certain verb. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person, how you ought to answer each person. What does that assume? That assumes that they asked you a question, doesn't it? You're answering them. And we find something similar in Peter, where Peter says that you ought to be ready always to give a a defense to those who ask you the reason for the hope that you have. Now, why would people be asking us questions about our faith? Why would people be asking questions about our hope? And the answer has to be is that we have lived a life that has provoked them to ask the question, that we have lived such a distinctly Christian life that they are obligated, compelled by what they see in us to ask us about it. And this is how the walking and the talking go together. It means that our faith is obvious enough, and it is appealing enough, and it is attractive enough that they want to know something about it, even though they may eventually respond in anger or opposition. But they have seen something in our lives. That's, that's how I became a Christian in part. I heard the gospel preached. I heard the word of God preached for the first time in my life. And I understood it. And I understood a message about Jesus being the Savior of sinners. And I had the sin part down. And I thought, well, if Jesus is the Savior of sinners and I'm a sinner, then that fits. That's what I want. But that wasn't all I heard. I also saw. I saw Christians, real Christians, for the first time, I think. Or at least that's the first time I had eyes to see them and notice them. And I thought, they are different. There's something about their lives that I want. They have something I don't have. Whatever they have is something that I want. I heard talking and I saw walking. And those two things combined are what are going to drive the gospel forward. So here you have it, folks. You want to know about the Colossian model? Paul, Timothy, what's the Colossian model? Here it is. Pray for open doors for the gospel. Live wisely before everybody. Speak to them all with grace about the grace of God in Christ, in three words, pray, walk, and talk. So let's pray. Our God, we do pray for open doors, for your missionaries around the globe, for our missionaries in West Africa, for us as we live our lives. And Lord, we pray that you would not only bring people into our lives, you do that all the time, but that we would be ready to snap up the opportunities that we have to live wisely before them and to speak to them about Jesus. So, Lord, teach us to pray as individuals. Help us to persist in prayer. Teach us to pray as a church. Help us to persist in prayer. Help us to walk wisely before those on the outside and to speak with grace so that those on the outside would, by your grace, by your opening a door of faith in their hearts, That they would be on the inside as well. That they would know the same grace that we know in Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.